Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. We're here with Anna Sweet. We're at Artist Block in Dundee. It's June 27th, 2023. Right, Anna, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, the first question, actually, is why wine? Why wine for me? I think it started with travel with my husband. And we would basically take every opportunity to go wine tasting. Um, we lived in San Francisco for a year. And we got the opportunity to really explore the Napa Valley and the surrounding areas. We traveled to Mendoza one year, and we stayed at this place called The Vines, which is all about wine. Um, He went off fly fishing one day, and I went to taste at the winery there on site, where they process. um, You can own a quarter of an acre, you can own 100 acres, uh, and you can have any kind of involvement in it. But I got to have a one-on-one sit down with the cellar master there. She was probably 24, and I was just turning 31, maybe. Um, She seemed like the most interesting person I'd ever met, and I had massive FOMO (laughs) and jealousy of just her life and her lifestyle. And so I told my husband for Christmas that year I wanted to study wine. And he remembered six months later and got me my first W set in Napa for my birthday. Um, Well, I went for my birthday. And I got to go with my best friend. We did a 24-hour stint in Napa. And I had so much fun. I immediately signed up for W set 2. And once my friend and I got through W set 2, I decided to take it to the Psalm side and learn the more formal service side of things. I've worked in restaurants my whole life and gotten an opportunity to live in New York City for 11 years. That's where I studied art. Um, It just felt like the natural path for me. I'm kind of, once I do, once I get into something, I'm I'm obsessed and I want to learn as much as I can. Um, So I kind of wanted to see what the Psalm side was about. Did that course. um, Actually, it kept getting pushed back because I got pregnant. but I was able to come out here in the meantime and do Harvest with Ken Wright. I had a friend that knew Ken, met him in a restaurant. He's that kind of guy, apparently, uh, and said, yeah, you got friends, bring them out. We'll do Harvest, which luckily that year was a very abbreviated sense of Harvest. It was about two weeks of squishing bugs um, on, on the line. And so a little glamorized, a little not glamorized, but I, I got to see a glimpse of it. I got to see Oregon for the first time. And uh, it's kind of just steamrolled since there. That's kind of the beginning of the story. But I'm sure you have other questions. So I don't want to keep going down that, that road. That would be fine. But we'll back up for a second. Because obviously you mentioned wine not being the first passion for you. So tell us about life before wine. Where were you born and raised? And, and tell us about kind of the path into art. Well, I grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina in an art gallery. Um, actually, right above it. My mom was an antique and art dealer and a painter herself. And I grew up watching her paint, restore artworks, fix furniture on the kitchen table, um, kind of do it all to support my nine. We have uh, nine in our family, so nine of us. And she managed to um, raise, uh, raise us with art. I 
tried to paint. I didn't have much patience for painting, so I got into photography, actually. She handed me a camera at 12, and I started photographing my sister, became obsessed with um, fashion magazines and advertising culture, um, and just felt like I can do something bigger. I can get out of Charlotte, North Carolina. I can um, really study this the right way, you know, kind of looking at my mom, how she kind of cowgirled it. Um, her whole life never studied it, just kind of did. And I thought, well, how, how great would it be if I could actually um, go down the formal path and, and you know, do this maybe uh, to the full extent. So I got into the School of Visual Arts in Manhattan in 2006 and studied photography there for about a year uh, until I dropped out because of the financing. I couldn't afford to go to school there. It was, you know, around 50000 a year. And my mom was just so against me being in art school because she didn't think it was necessary, obviously. Um, she was able to raise a family without going to art school. So I ended up moving to London and working for the one of the world's biggest fashion photographers, one of my biggest idols, Rankin. I ended up in his kitchen <laughs> because that's how you get hired at Rankin's studio. As an intern, you have to spend three months in the kitchen before you even become an intern. Um, so that was kind of eye-opening and um, I just realized if I worked half as hard on my own artistic career as I was for someone else, then I'd probably get there a lot faster. So. I quit after about a month and I just started focusing on me, my work, my concepts, um, and got my first gallery when I was maybe 24, 25, and then just kind of took off from there. I um, had my first series and um, that went really well. I opened my own gallery in 2007, no, 2017, in Key West, Florida, and had that for the last three years uh, right before we moved here. So. I guess that's what brings the art out here, kind of my life merged with the wine during that time after my first child was born. And yeah, here I am. Tell me about how your art um, sort of progressed or your style kind of progressed. What did you, when you started to kind of focus on what you wanted to do, what, what was that? Originally, all I wanted to shoot was fashion. And once I started my family, I realized that lifestyle was gonna be pretty tough. Um, traveling that much, living in New York City with you know, kids and dogs, and um, it didn't seem like the lifestyle I necessarily was starting to become accustomed to, uh, being able to work for myself on my own time as a fine artist. So I kind of went from photography to fine art photography um, because of, I don't want to say convenience, but because it offered me the freedom to create what I wanted to. It was financially um, supporting me at the time, even though it wasn't exactly what I wanted to do. And so I kind of went down the path of creating for my clients rather than for myself. And after about 10 years of doing that, it was about two years ago, once I moved here, then I made a really tough decision to completely change my medium and get into something that allowed me more freedom and not be confined to just the underwater photography world. So I kind of went out on a limb and created a piece, a sculptural pop art piece called Dot Nuts. And it was donuts in the form of Damien Hirst's dot painting, uh, color matched exactly to one of his paintings with 54 different paints from Home Depot. I spent a week there. They hated me in the paint department. Um, 
But once I created that piece and put it out to my collectors, it sold immediately and the response was really great. And I felt like, oh my gosh, like they love me for more than just the women that I was producing at the time. Um, and maybe it is possible to break away from what everyone expects of me. You know, I, I like to be challenged. I like to try new things. And the photography, I felt like I had done it. I had conquered it. I had, you know, done every pose, been to every location I wanted to, to go and met every collector I, I wanted to collect or wanted to meet in that series. So I was really just kind of hitting this, I don't want to say like midlife crisis because I'm too young for that, but uh, after having my second kid and realizing I'm probably never going to shoot for Vanity Fair, um, I decided, you know, I'm just going to do something crazy. I'm going to do something that challenges me. I'm going to do something that allows my doors to open to um, a broader world. I was kind of confined in the underwater photography, whether it was which galleries would carry me, um, where I could, how often I could produce my work um, because the productions were so large. Um, so it was just so liberating to create something and be able to work on it every day in my studio without having to be near an ocean or be near a pool or um, have you know models and wardrobe and all that stuff around me. So it was, for my creative side, so nurturing because I got to do something new and exciting every day. I got to put my hands on something every day. I got to create something from nothing in a day and instant gratification is the opposite of the wine world so you know I guess I'm finding balance here in the wine world and the art world um, this definitely you know satisfies my urge for instant gratification and I think wine is something that I look to to remind me to be patient and to enjoy life day to day and it's not all um, about today and tomorrow it's about you know what can I build for my family and for the future. So I have to say that before doing research for this interview, I was not aware of underwater photography as, as a medium. I was, I was kind of stunned by the amount of it. So tell me about getting into that and sort of discovering that as your kind of initial, initial foray. Um, what were the challenges? What, were the, what, 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 what motivated you to, to, to work in that? I think it was a way for me to turn photography into fine art. When I first started shooting, I realized I need to come up with something that's me. That's one of the first things they taught me in art school is when someone looks at your work, they should be able to say, that's an Anna Sweet. And so, you know, scouring as a young creative, you're like, what can I do to be original? What can I do that's mine? Um, I happen to travel a lot and, you know, my stepdad was a pilot, so I got to fly to a lot of cool places. Um, had a lot of young girlfriends that I would photograph from, you know, since I was photographing my sister at age 12, I was just always photographing the women in my life. And so I think technology had just hit that point where underwater cameras were a thing. It was like a little Canon G5 or something, and, or G1X, and it had a little underwater housing, and the whole setup was maybe 600 bucks. And so the coolest little toy, you know, way before GoPros were a thing. And I started just having fun with my girlfriends in the pool and did this whole series, kind of shot the photos. A year later, I started looking back and thinking, oh, maybe I could make something of those. This was when I was working for Rankin. Um, and I was stuck in London with not a lot of friends um, and a lot of time. And so I started to conceive of that first series. When I took it to the first gallery, they said, yeah, that's great, but we don't deal with photography. Um, 
it just doesn't work well for our collectors. And so I went back and I'm, you know, don't take no for an answer. So I figured out a way to make it not just photography. I started to incorporate mixed media, abstract paintings, materials, texture, um, giving it more of that hands-on look. And it was just a hit, I guess. When I came out to the gallery, they loved it. Um, they did a show, they sold every piece in the first show. Um, it just kind of like, I guess, chose me more than I chose it. Uh, it wasn't something I saw myself doing for 10 years. It just happened. Um, I started to sell and then produce and then sell more. And so I thought, okay, this is, this is who I am now. Um, but honestly, like the water terrifies me. <laughs> and I've had nothing but bad experiences um, in the ocean. And I, you know, it was a struggle every day, but at the same time, it was such a growing process because it's like, okay, overcoming your fear every time. Like, it's definitely a very challenging situation shooting underwater, but I think that's secretly what I loved about it is the fact that, like, not just anybody could do it. It was something that took so much, you know, trial and error, so much research um, as to the, the setting, and, and, and you had to be so conscious about every element happening all at once, you know, whether it's the tides or the temperature of the water or the clarity of the water or um, the light that time of day. There was just a million things to manage, so it definitely kept me challenged. And I think once it became easy is when I lost interest. So, um, yeah, after about 10 years, I felt like I'd, it wasn't a challenge anymore. Tell me about your first gallery show. What, was, what, were, your, what were the kind of the emotions like or what was the, the expectations like for you at that point? I was so nervous because I basically printed these things at Costco. I went to Home Depot and I bought plexiglass and I glued it with like double-sided, whatever kind of glue I could find at the time that wasn't gonna bubble and I used like a cookie roller to like <laughs> roll them to these, this plexiglass because they needed to be presented professionally but to get anything printed and framed was like $1,000 of that size. And so I did it for probably 150 bucks each. Every single one I had to replace because they fell apart. But that was fine because I had made the money at that point and I could afford to make them, you know, legit and um, sustainable. Uh, but it was just, how can I do this? How can I, you know, use what I have to make this happen? And I wasn't really afraid of failing, I guess. It was just, what can I do? Um, and so that first show, I mean, I was blown away. I couldn't believe that people were spending that much money on my you know, Costco art. Um, but it was definitely a confidence boost and um, some validation that, yeah, like maybe I'm actually good at this. Maybe I, I do have a, a career in this. It was kind of a, a huge learning experience at the same time. You know, I'm dealing with a gallery for the first time. They asked me what I wanted to charge for the work. I gave them a number and then they doubled it. And I thought I was giving them the retail price and that was my introduction to the fine art world. I was like, oh, you think that's what it's worth? Okay, we'll double it. Then that's what it's worth. So that was, that was definitely um, an eye-opening experience and then also just like a wow, like this is a great industry to be in for a 24-year-old, you know, like to be able to do what I love and work with a gallery that's doing all the kind of hard work of promoting and selling and dealing with the clients and the client expectations. I got to kind of 
sit back and observe and learn from that woman who had owned a gallery for 20 years at that point. Um, so I felt really, really grateful to be um, be a part of that, like have her as a, men a mentor at that young age. It was like nothing college could ever teach you. You know, it was kind of like when I went to work for Rankin, it was like, okay, and I'm not hating on university because it has a lot of, you know, in certain fields it's, it's essential. But in mine it was more get in, do, and see how how you fit in and what you like and what you don't like really quickly. Um, and then you get to kind of evolve and move really quickly. And that's always kind of been my pace is like, I'm always on the move, always on the, the search for what's next. What was it like to walk in and see like your pieces up, like uh, being displayed and being looked over by patrons? At first I was a very, I mean, I'm still an introvert, but a very introverted person. I hid behind my mom probably the whole time <laughs> and didn't talk to anybody. Um, really lacked the confidence as a creative um, and just a human being at that point. I was a very nerdy art school kid um, and I didn't have any sort of confidence at all about the work. Um, but then when I saw that first red dot, I was like, okay, like maybe, maybe, the, maybe I am valuable in that sense. Um, so it was huge for my self-confidence and self-esteem and um, yeah, changed my life. Hiding behind your mom creates that air of mystique, I think. So that's, that's what you're going for there. People, if, they can't find, if they can't find the artist, then it's that air of mystery. It worked for a while. And then I started doing my own art shows um, with my brother actually, who is a salesman. Mm -hmm. That's his thing. And he, I remember just sitting like across from the booth and looking at him do his thing, you know, sell the work. He was great at it. Like we kind of made a great team. And he taught me slowly over the years how to come out of my shell and just talk about myself, just to talk with collectors. That's really all they want to do is meet the artist, talk to the artist, um, hear their inspiration and, and see that they're a real person. Um, so that was kind of a crash course too and learning how to be more confident, represent my own work, um, push forward in my career, you know, market myself, all of that. It's the art world is so upside down and backwards and frustrating at times because it's kind of like the music industry. I think there's so many talented people out there, but there's really no written rules of how to like get there. It's kind of like a little bit of magic, a little bit of, you know, luck. Um, but then like, I realized it's just wearing a lot of hats and a lot of hard work. I feel like if you want to be successful with anything in life, it's you have to look beyond just what the fun part is um, and see, okay, what are all the other building blocks that are going to make this house? You know, you can't just build a house with drywall. So that has been my approach ever since the beginning, watching my mom do it all. I thought, well, I can do anything. I can, if, if I set my mind to it and if, I, um, if I'm not afraid to fail. And so whether that's learning QuickBooks or designing wine labels, which I've never, you know, learning that, that program, you know, working with Pantones and um, Illustrator, like all these new things, um, dealing with the vineyard team, farming the vineyard. It's like there's just, all it takes is dedication to learning that and you're able to 
you know, maybe not do it the best of, of anyone, but you can do it well enough to, to build what you're trying to build. So um, whether it's the art world or the wine world, I felt like that's one thing that's helped me a lot is just not being afraid to dive in and learn something new. Uh, whether that's, you know, like I said, farming in the vineyard or um, learning the SOM side of things or learning a POS system for wine or, you know, business, creating business cards or whatever that may look like, designing the website, working with Google Ads. It's like now there's social media, which is a whole full-time job. Um, and as a small company, you, you kind of have to do it all. You, you know, you have to wear all the hats uh, in the beginning, at least, for sure. So you mentioned that your next stop after New York was, was Key West, which is an inter interesting place. So how, how did you come to own a gallery in Key West? Well, I met my husband there. He's around the corner. Um, and I had a gallery there that represented my work. They were great. They were my second gallery. Uh, naturally, I was in Fort Lauderdale first and then thought, okay, another big tourist destination, Key West. Never really knew anything much about it. Um, but went down there, had five pieces in my truck and said, hey, I want to show you something. I want to see if you'd like it. It's doing really well in Fort Lauderdale. Um, so I just, you know, heart beating like crazy, went in there and showed the work to the gallery owner and they took it on the spot. Um, had that relationship for a few years, met my husband uh, on one of the trips down there. And we, you know, started dating, moved to San Francisco, uh, moved to Hawaii, had my first kid. And then I thought, okay, I want to get back to the art world. I want to do something big. I want to do the next step. I'd love to open a gallery. I'd love that challenge of starting a business like my mom always had. And so we thought, well, Key West is my number one market. So that's where we met. We, you know, we have lots of friends there. And we ended up just moving back with our four-month-old daughter and starting Anna Sweet Gallery, which was totally ruffled some feathers on Duval Street, I'm sure. It was very different. It was very young and fun, and, um, you know, I'd love to throw parties and make a scene and um, just make people have a good time. You know, that's what I wanted to be there for was to create an experience for people, offer really high-quality um, artwork and an experience at the same time. Um, I feel like anyone can, you know, there's lots of people that can sing well. There's lots of people that can um, create nice art and there's lots of people that can create good wine but like if you can't create an exp a memorable experience for someone in a connection with that person um, they're probably going to move on to the next to the next thing so and what was the experience like of having your own place in Key West it was the worst it was like I think I had a total mental breakdown in Key West I had a four-month-old child we had just moved from Hawaii and I tried to start a business all in the same year and I just had no idea what I was getting myself into. I mean, it was the first time I felt knocked off my pedestal for sure. I, my rent was insane. I had employees for the first time in my life. I had a three-year lease with a shark of a landlord that would totally ruin me if I defaulted. <laughs> and I just had no choice but to fight for it. And you know that at times hurt my family and at times hurt me, but it was really eye-opening, and I learned a lot about balance and, sorry, I'm getting emotional, but like just mental health and um, what it takes to find what I thought was happiness at the time. Um, it was totally skewed. You know, it was, um, I thought more would make me happier or better, but in reality, it, it took away more than it gave. And so 
I had to learn how to be a mom, be okay being away from my business. Um, and then being okay just not making everyone happy at the same time because perfection is not possible. Even though as, as much as I strive for it, um, it, will, it drove me crazy. So I had to learn how to step up and make tough decisions. And my mom worked for me at the time and that was another huge part of it um, that was difficult but also a blessing. You know, I don't think the gallery would have survived without her but at the same time it was the hardest hardest part for me was dealing with someone who is used to being the boss her whole life and now you know the roles are reverse and um, I, I, I tried to explain to her like we can't do things your way that's 50 years ago way you know like we, this is my vision this is my baby this is like my responsibility I, I, at the end of the day I'm the one responsible if it fails so please just listen to me and like let me make the decisions and um, it was tough it was really really hard and I thought coming here, I was doing the smart thing by like getting away from that like high stress, that demand, that party every day atmosphere in Key West, um, which I have. I mean, it's absolutely gorgeous and beautiful here, but I do believe that this is going to be almost just as much, if not more of a challenge than the gallery because I'm not from the wine world, you know? But I want to do the best job I can. I want to provide high quality product with experience. I want the wines to be the best they can be. I want the experience to be the best it can be. I want everyone to walk away from this saying, wow, I'm inspired. I'm inspired that you don't have to do something the way everyone else is doing it. Um, to succeed and I think there's a lot of fear in that and there's a lot of risk in that but I don't know for me I think I'd be bored if there wasn't. I'm getting that impression very quickly that you would be, yes. Uh, so shifting gears kind of over to wine then, um, you mentioned uh, WSET as your first step. Tell me about initial wine education experience. Obviously you'd had wine, you were excited about wine. What was it like to actually get education in wine? I was so giddy to be back in school because I wasn't a great student. I always cared more about art than school. So I was literally skipping school in the art room or the photography class. And those teachers supported it, which is crazy. <laughs> um, they let me just be there. But when I went to college for art, I was obsessed. I felt like this is my calling, this is where I belong. And um, getting to go back there and study something, and it was kind of just, you know, it was one day in a classroom in Napa. Um, but to learn about this stuff that was always such a mystery, but in like a formal setting, it was just so exciting. I was just, you know, tickled. And then when they came around and like asked, they were asking everybody like, oh, where are you from? And what brought you here? I mean, my heart was pounding. I was so nervous because I, I didn't come from a wine background. I wasn't working in a restaurant. I wasn't, you know, I felt like, oh, they're going to think I'm weird or crazy because I just want to do this for fun, you know? Um, and I did. I had so much fun. And I'm still like, I love this industry. I love how it brings people together. I love how um, it's such an art form in itself. It's creating something with such care and intention 
that someone's going to actually consume. You know, that's so much more powerful to me than art, which you consume in a different way. Um, but this is something that people are actually like bringing into their own body. And as an artist, that just kind of is like, to me, kind of like the pinnacle of, of creating is like something that becomes part of somebody else. So as you as you continued and went on to the Psalm, the Psalm side and got in, in more even more formal education, uh, what were the things that sort of excited you most about wine? What, what were you learning that was like kind of driving you forward at that point? Honestly, it was like 100% challenge, I think. It was something that I loved and being able to, I mean, I'm sure we've all seen like the Psalm movies on Netflix and that was something I had discovered at the time and I thought, these people are so cool. <laughs> like, wow. Like imagine someone so smart and so dedicated and to their craft and, and so educated on their craft that they can look and smell something and know exactly what, you know, part of the world it came from down to, you know, what vineyard and what, what year. And so to me, that was like just so impressive. And wine is such a huge part of my life. Well, was, I don't want to say everyone's lives, um, but like on a daily basis, you go out to a restaurant and I just felt stupid looking at the wine list and not knowing one, how to pronounce the names or two, what any of them meant or three, what I wanted to drink, even though I drank wine and I loved wine every day, but it was like, loving Italian food and not knowing what pasta is which, I don't know. So I just felt like I wanted to kind of take control of that part of my life and um, challenge myself into learning the formal side of, of the wine industry by doing this class that was so fun and challenging. And I don't know, it just made me feel good about myself. It gave me self-confidence to be able to speak that language and to look, I don't want to say like, I'm probably, it makes me sound like I want to be a know-it-all, but like being at the dinner table around a bunch of men in suits and, and knowing how to navigate that wine list more than any of them, you know? So that was a little bit empowering for me as a woman, for sure. <laughs> Still to this day, people hand me the wine list and I'm like, let me call Brie. Hold on. <laughs> Which, you know, Brie Stock's our winemaker. Tell me about your first harvest experience. You mentioned it was, it was abbreviated. What did you think of the process? I learned so much about bugs. <laughs> I mean, my fear of bugs, how many bugs are in wine, what kind of bugs are in wine, um, how many bugs you can squish without getting a blister. Um, <laughs> it was all about bugs, um, where they can hide on your body, that you don't know they're there. Um, yeah, it was just a lot of, it was a lot of bugs, but it was a lot of community too. It was like, uh, Ken, you know, he's had the same people doing harvest for him for 20 years, probably. Um, so getting to stand beside the pastor, I can't remember his name, but he was in charge of our line and he was just this father, what they call him father something. Um, but that little family, you know, that like came around the sorting table and spent eight hours on their feet volunteering for this winemaker um, and, and just to be there to support him and his, you know, his legend um, and be a part of that community. It was, you know, I didn't, you know, even though I grew up with a big family, we were kind of, we were on a busy road. We didn't live in a neighborhood. 
I never really had community growing up, and so I think another thing about the wine world that was like instantly attractive was, oh, I have something in common with my neighbors. I have something that we can share, we can talk about, that will bring us together. Um, and that's what I love about like studying wine too, is getting to meet people in the WSET course or the SOM course that you know, we're just as excited to be learning. Like we just, we could talk for hours because it was a common interest. Um, but yeah, that first harvest was, it was fun. It was like really good food. Um, it was hard work. I got to be innovative, you know, figure out how I could catch all the bugs on my ankles without them crawling up my pants. So I took duct tape and I put it inside out and I put it around my boots. Um, but I taped my pants to my, shoots first and then I put <laughs> duct tape and I caught at least like 50 or 100 earwigs on my ankles. They still made it up to my hat and stuff but I don't know. I just had fun. I had fun overcoming my bug fear and um, learning about just all the nuances and the care and the delicacy that goes into creating this very um, something that you know you might take for granted in a sense. It's like you buy it at the grocery store and you don't think, oh my gosh, the hands, the amount of work, the amount of people that had a part in creating this. It's not like a cake. It's like a cake that 100 people made, you know? So that was super eye-opening, um, but I just loved it. I loved seeing the forklift come in and out. I loved seeing like the mechanics of it. I loved seeing, um, you know, why this one and why not that grape. Um, and why the bugs were okay in the wine, because they had acid, apparently. Um, and they all float to the top anyway. So uh, yeah, I don't know. It was just like crash course of like textile and sensory and everything. As an artist, I was just eating it up, loving it. And what year was that harvest? That was 2019. You said that was your first time in Oregon? Yeah. What were your first impressions of Oregon? Are we really going to move here? No. It was because um, we, we, we drove from like Portland to Dundee, and it's mainly 99, right? And so you're kind of like, okay, this looks like any old town. And it wasn't until I started driving to harvest every morning through the like rolling hills of wine country that I was like, oh, this is why. This is it. You know, like this is Italy. Like it looks like. Tuscany to me like I you know it, it was bringing back fond memories of being in like the Tuscan wine region and I didn't know it existed in the United States you know you go to California and it's just a very different kind of desertist um, uh, landscape and here it was just like rolling green hills with like beautiful fog settling over the hills and you know the sunrises were gorgeous and um, it was like a painting I mean straight up like a beautiful you know Hudson River School painting. It was just like something I had grown up, you know, idolizing. And to realize that was in like America's backyard and had, had no idea about Oregon a year before, um, I was, it was wow. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> my PNW donut? Yeah. <laughs> Do I need to move over a little bit? <laughs> So at this time, you've, you've had some wine education. You have done a harvest now. Uh, what, are your, what were your thoughts on the industry? Were you, were you at this point already planning to do something like this? Or how did this project sort of start to come to fruition? I think I was looking at my life in Key West with my husband and thinking, OK, maybe I can get away from the madness 
of Duval Street and the Spring Break culture and get into a project that him and I could be involved in together. Um, he comes from a finance background and I come from an art background. We can really kind of live and work wherever. Um, so we had that flexibility to explore and discover new territory. And after falling in love with Organ Pino um, through, actually it started in South America at Curzon del Sol. And then they were like, oh, check out Alexana, check out Ravana. Um, and we ended up, you know, drinking all these Dundee Hills Pinots in our Key West house. I, I literally one night, sorry, this is a segue, but um, I was drinking a bottle of Alexana. I had no idea what I was drinking. I was like eating pizza with like Frank's Red Hot or something and watching Game of Thrones. And then I'm like, man, this wine is really good. I'm like, what is this? And I like look it up and I'm like, oh, it's like a $125 bottle of Pinot. I'm like, dang. I'm like, where's, where's, where's Dundee? Like, where is, where is that? I've never even heard of this. It, it kind of led us on this little like, I don't know, it was almost like a mouse like picking up the breadcrumbs as we kind of followed this path of, you know, maybe changing up our life from Key West and the hustle of that, um, the crazy party culture, um, having a second kid, COVID happening, wanting to kind of be a recluse a little bit and retract into nature and um, into a lifestyle that would be more conducive to having a family. Um, so I got really excited about the idea of having land that I could connect to and be a part of. Um, having something more rich and deep and rooted than just a um, tiny little concrete blocks on a tourist street, you know? So a lot of, you know, the challenge and the lifestyle change and the future of it and what it could build and become was enticing to me. It was like building a dream of a life with my family. Uh, raising kids in wine country was much more appealing than raising kids on Duval Street. So, yeah, I think it was kind of a little bit of everything that kind of led us here. And um, once we came and started looking around, we really started falling in love with the landscape. And um, for me, Oregon was like a, a little bit of the untapped place. It was not California. It's not burning every year, hopefully not yet. Um, and it was still, I don't want to say affordable, but it was, we were able to find, we got really lucky with this place in the Dundee Hills. Um, was fully forested, was not looking, no one was looking at it to plant. So I think we got it for a great price and it allowed us to get into this industry. Um, and kind of get our little piece of what I feel like is going to be the next big wine region of the United States. I mean, I don't know much, but I, I literally can compare it to like um, the stock market a little bit. It's like you see something trending and then, you know, all of a sudden, 10 years later, boom, it's, it's there. It's like um, seeing one bottle of Oh gosh, what was like the first organ Pinot in the grocery store? Like maybe probably Erath or A to Z maybe. Four Graces or A to Z or something like that. And then within a year, there were like five. And I was like, oh my gosh, this organ place is blowing up. Like people are, this is a this is this is hot. You know, this is a thing. And so um, I think a little bit was opportunism. You know, like get in on something while it's still somewhat on the rise and. So it was attainable for us to get into. Um, 
and be a part of that journey of this valley. I'm, you know, really proud and just like pinch myself every day coming to work here, like that I'm lucky enough to have this space to, to come to and this community to be a part of and how welcoming and accepting 99% um, of people have been. Because, you know, not everyone's happy just in life. Um, but truly, like, coming to a place where I felt community and culture and, you know, the future was so bright for this place. Like, that's what I want for my kids. Like, I want them to be um, a part of something real. And I think we've found that here. Let's first talk about the land itself. Uh, you mentioned obviously forested and kind of kind of hidden, even hidden in plain sight, perhaps. Uh, tell me about finding it and about deciding this was the place you wanted to be. Steve found it on Zillow one day. It was a little tiny red house, and it's, it was advertising 10 acres. And he, as a researcher that he is, was immediately on Google Earth looking at the elevations and the soil types. And uh, we sent it to results who we were kind of consulting with results partners, and they came out and tested the soil. And we looked at elevation and site and scope and slope and whatever you call it. Um, and uh, it was all like a check, check, check of the boxes. And so I came out here with my mom. I was probably six months pregnant. And just, you know, immediately the next, next day I was on a plane, um, met with the woman who lived in the house. She was... Um, quite a bit older and she would needed to retire and go to um, something. I mean, it was a two-story house with a wood-burning stove and she was starting that thing every day herself. So um, I think she's 80-something. So she, I knew she needed to sell, but she didn't want to sell. And I think that, that was like the story of everyone that we met here when we were trying to buy. I get it, you know, like, man, you build your life here, you build something, you, you live so long and it's such a beautiful place. and. I can't imagine what she went through to let go of this, but um, she didn't want to. We, I, I sat with her for days. Her husband homesteaded this whole road. Uh, Milo Fox was his name, so this is Fox Lane. And he you know, slowly sold off the, the pieces of land that our neighbors live on. Um, but she eventually let us buy the property. We spent two through three years clearing. We tried to keep um, as many of the natural um, indigenous plants and trees as possible. Um, we listened to arborists when they said, yes, white oaks, the, the, the fir, you don't, you know, whatever. So um, we, were, we kind of just kind of leaned on the experts around us, you know, whether it was results or the arborists or um, we consulted with different uh, like biodynamic people and um, wetlands conserva conserva what's the word um, conservatorship yes conservatorship um, so we were just crash course learning a lot didn't want to come in and just throw everything up in the air and you know put our suitcases down it was like okay how can we like delicately approach this project and this site to not totally disturb what was happening here, I mean, it was categorized as a wildlife sanctuary when we moved in. And I wanted to do it in phases. I wanted to slowly approach the project. Um, I mean, there was no way to slowly approach clearing the trees, but it's just been this ongoing development that eventually I want to 
like restore to its full glory. I mean, it was overgrown with ivy and blackberry when we got here, you know, for tons of fir trees. Um, and my dream and goal for it is to see it like restored to like its natural beauty and have, you know, um, the wetlands fully restored and the oak grove fully restored and the vineyards as organic and biodynamic as possible. Um, obviously that all comes with a price. And so it's something we've had to kind of put as a long-term goal, but it is our intention to do this right and do this with integrity so that it can sustain a um, hundred years or more, you know, be in the family for as long as possible. Uh, with the vineyard, um, tell me about, you obviously mentioned working with results partners. Uh, tell me about deciding how much to plant and, and what to plant. Well, that's kind of a funny story. We thought, we're moving to the Dundee Hills. We're getting five acres of Pinot. And that's what we did. We bought five acres of Pinot. We had it in the nursery for about two years, um, letting the vines develop before the site was ready to plant. And the more I went around, the more I tasted, the more I learned quickly about organ wine, like crash coursing it again. I learned that the Chardonnay that I was tasting was much more interesting to me at the time than, don't get me wrong, I love Pinot Noir but everyone makes good Pinot Noir here. And I'm not one to want to do what everyone else is doing, if you can't tell. Um, so I think we made that, it was really tough actually. Like it was like, my stomach was nuts because unlike art, where you do something, you make a mistake, you fix it, you turn around the next day and, and paint over it. You can't do that with a vineyard. And I felt like so helpless at times because I was talking to as many people as possible. I was talking to our winemaker, I was talking to our vineyard manager, I was talking to our neighbors, I was talking to every winemaker I met, I was talking to wine shop owners. I mean, I was trying to get everyone's opinion, listening to podcasts, like reading blogs, like anything I could do to educate myself to make this really, really important, tough decision on what to plant. And at the end of the day, I sat back and I thought, okay, what do I want to drink? <laughs> what do I love? What does Steve love? You know, he loves Syrah, I love Chardonnay. So we planted both those things. Do people look at us cross-eyed sometimes when we say we planted Syrah on the Dundee Hills? Absolutely. But I, I confirmed it with our vineyard manager and he was on board. So I'm like, okay, these guys are the experts. They know whether I'm making a t terrible decision or not. And if they say it's good to go, then that's what I have to listen to at the end of the day. So, you know, making that clonal selection of Pinot was probably the hardest part. Um, we had it all set up and ready to go. And then I talked to our neighbors over at Granville and um, Alan Holstein. And he's like, oh, no, don't plant that. And I'm like, oh, God. Just when I thought I had decided, like, what half acre of Pinot to plant, um, they're like, yeah, no, we just ripped that out last year. <laughs> you don't want to plant that. And so I was like, OK, you know what? I said, Chris, just go to the nursery and just get them a solid blend. I'm like, whatever they have, whatever it's like, what's, what's right now, what's working for that nursery, I'm like, just, I don't, I don't wanna know. I don't wanna know what the varietals are. I'm like, just bring them in, plant them. Um, and this was just after doing harvest with Guillaume from Resonance and very French as he is, he was all about Masal. So he kind of educated me on that and said, you know, this is how we do it in Burgundy. We let the site speak for itself. Um, the varietals are just, you know, not as important as the terroir and and um, and all that. So, so yeah, that's how we ended up with 
I don't even know what Pinot we have. Um, but Chardonnay, Syrah, Aligote, and Viognier. They're what we have planted here, about five acres. Anonymous Pinot Noir. Anonymous, yep, we'll never know. Yep, no one will ever know, so no one can ever copy it. You mentioned your winemaker, you mentioned obviously Brie, Brie working with this project. Tell me about finding her and, and figuring out that she would be the person for this project. We were tasting at Beckham, and her and Chad were pouring, and we got to talking to them a little bit. They told us about their consulting and um, kind of heard our story a little bit, and that was it. We went away. I had their number um, for about two years. All I did was take notes of what I liked about places and what I didn't like about places and what inspired me and what didn't inspire me. Um, every weekend, every, every opportunity we had, we were going to new tasting rooms. And so I had this really long list of people and notes and all that. And I think it was when we were trying to decide what to plant that I was like, I just need, I need to talk to somebody. Like I need to, I need to, you know, someone that I know nothing. Like I need to talk to someone that knows this area that knows, can see our vision and, and help us get there. So I think Steve might have said, oh, what about that couple we met at Beckham? Like she was a wine consultant. And so um, reached out to her and we met here on site. Um, I happened to bring a bottle of wine that I was inspired by, um, pulled it out from behind my back and she's like, oh, Chad made that. That's Chad's wine. And I'm like, of course, out of the 5,000 bottles in the Valley of, I don't know how many types of wine there are, um, bottles of wine, like this is like one of his. And so I'm like, gosh, this is, this is kind of weird. Like, you know, maybe this is, this could be a really good thing. You know, and we, Brie and I vibed instantly. I think we're both super passionate people. We're very forward thinking. We're very, you know, driven and, um, just excited about what the future has to like hold for change and for, um, just including or opening up minds to what's possible. Um, so it seemed like a really good fit and we decided to work with them as of that week and she's been our consultant ever since but also decided to be our winemaker shortly after. I think that's something that she wants to um, get more into and, and as like her career progresses maybe step away. I mean I don't want to speak for her but um, she, she told me that she wants to be more of a winemaker. So. Um, we wanted a female winemaker. I'm all about my female staff. I vibe really well with other women and, and um, I just find that it's an easy work environment for me and I love supporting women and um, after moving here especially and doing harvest and seeing how much of a man's world it is, um, it was, you know, kind of nice and important to me to show that, you know, what women are capable of in this, in this industry and in this place. Um, and I never really, I don't want to say it's like a divide. I don't want to say, you know, I don't know, this is where it gets a little controversial and tricky, but I, I didn't feel like my opinion mattered. And granted, I don't know why, and I don't know the industry, but I'm a hard worker. And I felt at times that because maybe I was a girl that I had no place in this industry. Um, and if there's anything that inspires me, it's being told that I can't do something. So 
I will say that's happened, and I will say it fuels me. It's probably the wrong kind of fuel, but <laughs> um, I definitely love that challenge aspect of it. Um, and so I think it's been really important to me to show that, like, hey, look what look what us women can do. I'm not saying I'm not going to have any. I mean, my husband works in the tasting room, so there's there's a boy right there. But um, for the most part, it's it's all women here. We have I have a full female studio staff and a full female tasting room staff. So and winemaking. I think the only guy besides my husband is Chris, our, our vineyard manager, but really connected with him and um, love where he comes from and love his, love his ideas. And um, we, we understand each other. I feel like that's such an intimate side of this business. Um, everything starts in the vineyard. You know, my husband and I farmed an actual acre of a vineyard for an entire year and learned very quickly how important every tiny decision is. And so when it came to the farming side, obviously we don't have the capability to farm this ourselves. So I needed to find someone that I felt was going to be aligned with my you know, vision and um, just work ethic and um, intention. And so getting to speak with Chris and spend time with him and learn his story and what he his goals are for uh, and intentions are in the winemaking um, side of his, his life. It was definitely something that aligned. And then the fact that he works with Brie too, I was like, okay, well, I don't let boys in very often, but I think, I think this is going to work. So. Tell me about the wine so far. Um, what, what were you, what was sort of your aim with the wines themselves and, and how's that going so far? It's, it's kind of like there's definitely two sides to it, right? There's the art side, the, the aesthetic side, and then there's the winemaking side and the, the decisions on that end. And how you do one thing is how you do everything. And I just, I feel like an overachiever. Like I, when I do something, I just want to do it the best I can. And hiring Brie, I feel so lucky and so confident in her ability and you know, she's got Chad on her side as well, who's, you know, long-standing winemaker in the Valley. And to me, they're just this power couple that I'm so, so blessed to have found and to be working with. Um, so I feel like she's got the wine side, right? I'm just there to give my ideas of the vision for the brand and, um, and kind of softly guide her towards what I see my consumers connecting with and my collectors connecting with. And so I have very like minimal input. I mean, it's important input, but it's for the most part, I'm like, you're the artist. You know this, you do this. Um, and I'm gonna do this side, because this is my side. This is what I know. I know how to appeal to um, you know, a demographic or a collector. Um, I know what I wanna say. I know what art I wanna put on the labels. I know, I know how I want this wine to come across. You consume first with your eyes. Labels are everything. Bottles, you know, presentation is everything. Unless your your reputation precedes you, and then it doesn't matter. But we don't have that luxury. You know, we're here. We're new. We're we're young and and just starting at this. So, I see the importance of a very clear and and appealing brand side of it. Um, and I know a lot of people might not like to hear that, but at the same time, I need to make sure this thing survives. I need to make sure I can pay my bills. And I'm not going to ignore any opportunity to be better at something. 
And so if I, I do feel like the labels are and, and the product, like the, the aesthetics and the brand and um, the message I'm trying to convey on the front of the bottle is just as important as what's in the bottle. Um, you know, it's just who I am. It's, I'm an artist and I create things for people to consume with their eyes and she creates things for to consume um, in other ways. But um, yeah, so the wine to me, I say is fine wine for the next generation. It's wine that is incredibly high quality, very intentional, all small batch and, you know, organic vineyards and uh, low intervention and um, just beautiful, I hate to use the word natural for, just personally, but these beautiful natural wines. Um, and then packaging them with high quality materials, um, beautiful labels, funny labels, labels that um, put a smile on people's faces, I think is taking the pretentiousness off the front of it and allowing someone to feel more comfortable in that approach to wine because as we progress in general, I mean, I went to the Oregon Wine Symposium and it's talking about the future of wine and you know how we're having to get millennials and, and younger people drinking and wine to, to sustain this industry. And I think a big part of that is appealing to their culture. And to me, the first part of that is the aesthetic of it um, and the message that it sends and how, what they feel they're a part of when they're drinking it. Um, not just the story uh, of the background, but like, I don't know how to best say it, but like it's truly like the the visible symbols of um, like their status or their culture. Um, so yeah, the art is is super important to me, just as much as the winemaking and fine wine for the next generation, I guess. So what do you want the label to stand for? I want the label to be a work of art. I want the wine to be a work of art. I want the whole thing to be this beautiful symbiotic work of art. The backs of every wine bottle have a certificate of authenticity. They're signed by Brie, myself, and they're numbered. So every piece is, is handled by us. It's, it's from, from beginning to end, it has our mark on it. I want the labels to be approachable, again, to kind of take that pretentiousness away from, you know, people getting intimidated with a bunch of French words. I don't know what that means. I don't know what I'm drinking. Um, I want to strip all that away and just be like, you don't have to think that hard about it. Like, this is fun. You're attracted to it. You like it. Just try it and then decide. Don't let anything get in the way of that. So for me, I want the labels and the bottles and the packaging to open the door for younger people to um, get into the fine wine world. I mean, these are not cheap wines that we're making. It's impossible to make a cheap wine of any quality in Dundee Hills. You know, you just, you'll go bankrupt if you do. Um, so the quality is here, the intention is here, the packaging has to match. And so I'm really excited about that about creating a true work of art from outside to in um, and, and, and sharing that with the next generation. Well, we've talked about everything else except for this particular space that we're sitting in now. So obviously the kind of the centerpiece of what you're doing. Tell me about this space, uh, uh, coming up with it, pulling it off and, and what all you have going on here. 
Well, this was originally just supposed to be my art studio. Um, we had a 6,000 square foot home tasting room and guest suites designed and planned for the top of the hill. And it was right in the middle of COVID. This prices of steel and lumber and all of that skyrocketed. So what was once one price was now triple and it wasn't feasible for us to build. So we pivoted and decided, okay, we'll offer a more intimate experience inside of my studio. It's a simple structure. Um, I can outfit the basement to be my studio and we can host people upstairs. So this is actually not the original design and it's the beginning of this project for us. Um, it's a space that I want people to come and feel as though they're at home but like their home is really cool. Uh, <laughs> and I want it to be fun and exciting. And every meeting with the architects that I had, I'm like, okay, now how do we ignite another sense? How do we, I want visual, I want smell, I want audio, I want tactile. I want this to be a fully immersive experience subtly, you know, it, I mean, it's not subtle in here, but for the most part, um, I wanted people to like, just be excited about this wine tasting experience. I've probably tasted at a hundred tasting rooms and I respect and admire that a lot of them are their family's homes. You know, um, this is what my home looks like. So welcome to my home, you know, uh, but at the same time, the art on the walls is a way for me to highlight some of the people that I've met in my career as an artist who don't have gallery representation, who are very young and emerging artists. The art world is so hard to break into and to navigate and to understand. And so my goal with the wall space here is to allow an opportunity for these artists to start to get some feedback on their work, start to understand what it's like to maybe work with a gallery, um, what it's like to ship their artwork, what it's like to have to photograph it, to have to keep inventory, to have to um, talk about it. And so a bigger dream and picture of mine is to help all these up and coming artists get their start like I was given an opportunity to start mine. And same with the wine we are trying to support winemakers who don't have a tasting room, who don't have the resources yet to promote their own wine outside of a wine shop where they're beside a hundred other winemakers. So Brie and I have been calling out for up and coming small producers that don't have a tasting room and need that voice and for us to be able to do that here in the Dundee Hills, I'm just like so grateful that we can even provide that, but love that we're, we can be this creative haven for winemakers, artists, um, just creators and thinkers and dreamers of all kinds. Um, that's my goal with this space is to attract the like-minded creatives, um, that can inspire each other and help each other. And then in the meantime, you know, maybe we can 
sell some of their wine and their work to help support their careers moving forward. Um, so I'm pretty passionate about um, giving those opportunities to the young creatives that are so hard to come by. So as you look ahead then for the space and for the brand, what is sort of your vision or your, your kind of overall goal as, 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 the, as it grows and as it expands? I don't know. Honestly, that's a tough question. I ask myself all the time. I keep my husband up late at night asking him to answer it for me. Um, <laughs> so we talk about it quite often. We try to imagine what this looks like in five years. Um, I think it's impossible to know right now. We can have an idea of what we want. But to be successful, I think we have to stay flexible and have to be have our eyes open to oppor new opportunities and new paths and new concepts and where it naturally evolves to and and we're inspired to be, to to go and 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 what we're inspired to create. It's it's always changing. It's always evolving. And right now, I'm just really happy to be inspiring people and to be helping creatives get to the next step. Um, so that's going to be my mission for now is to make this as successful as possible because the more successful we are, the more successful everyone is that that's a part of it. So you mentioned earlier that part of your motivation for coming to Oregon was sort of lifestyle and, and raising children and having a family here. So tell me about what life is like now for you uh, a few years into your Oregon experience. It's a little bit like a dream, you know? I get to, especially this during the summer, it's so beautiful, so gorgeous. And to be in the sunshine and the low humidity and the cool weather with my dogs and my family playing in the yard, like that is the picture perfect life that everyone dreams about. And to be two minutes from my vineyard, like I feel like so lucky just to say that, you know, um, that this is a reality for me, that I get to come to work here every day and spend time with my husband and then go see our kids at home. It's, it's the balance that I was seeking out and I'm so grateful that it's a reality for us. We worked really hard to make it a reality, but I feel like I'm slowly finding that balance of work versus enjoying my life. You know, like for me, work is my life. And so work needs to look and feel like it's not work. And this is just that. I was joking with my assistant yesterday saying for social media, you know, there was this one reel and it was like how to not, um, what was it? Like how to not like hate your job. And it was like, don't go to work or something. And I was like, no. Like how to not hate your job, like love what you do, like love where you are and, and, and love your day to day. You know, I, I feel my heart goes out for people who, who don't have this opportunity or, you know, don't realize that maybe there's something else out there for them that they would enjoy more. I made that switch in Key West because I knew this is not what's bringing me joy. I need to change this. And it's, it has not been easy. It's been incredibly challenging and heartbreaking at times. Um, I cried like a baby when I saw the vines in the ground. I just couldn't believe it. I thought this would never happen. It just felt like at one point it was never gonna happen. Um, so now that we're here and I get to come here every day and, and see this place and, and be with my family, it's, 
it's very rewarding. As you mentioned a couple of times in the interview, you're, you're not someone who stands still very well. So uh, what are you looking ahead to for yourself in the future? Are there any, any projects you're looking to undertake or anything kind of else on your horizon? I think I'd like to create a side of the wine that can appeal and be accessible to anyone. Um, I'm not going to lie, like I said earlier, this wine isn't produced inexpensively. So it's not just anyone can afford it, but I would love to produce a line that could be shared with anyone and everyone. So that's one big thing that I'm going to be focusing on the next year is um, more accessible wine um, with integrity. But also my fine art will always be a huge part of me. Um, I've put my art career kind of on pause while I'm here getting this baby walking. Um, but I will kind of start to find that balance too between the art and the wine. Again, you know, once this is kind of taking care of itself, I'll be able to go back into the fine art world and continue that side of things while overseeing this. And so I'm hoping they can really just be this nice, like, okay, work really hard over here, but then I get to slowly build both of these things for the rest of my life and, um, and see where they go. On the art side, are you considering is more, of, more of what you've been doing or do you have some, another medium or another style you'd like to attack? I want to evolve and do something completely new, um, naturally. Uh, this is my latest series, the Sculptural Pop Art, but I'm trying to figure out what's next for me. I feel like I've done every donut in the world. And I want to find something that speaks to my voice a little bit more and a little bit more. This was all about consumerism and the fine art world and how people consume art. And um, I'm, I'm toying around with some ideas. I haven't really nailed anything down yet because it's not my full focus right now. But it's in the back of my mind and it's always always working. And what do you see for the future of the Oregon wine industry? Obviously, you've talked about your entrance into it and your kind of initial impressions. Where is it going next and what, what excites you about the future? I had an insight yesterday about that exact thing. I was thinking about Brie and how forward thinking she is. And, you know, she wanted me not to plan any Pinot Noir on this site. Um, because she realizes how much more this valley is capable of. And I thought, man, wouldn't it be cool to be the region? Because someone had mentioned that day also, like, well, of course, Pinot Noir is going to be our culture. Um, and I was thinking, but does it have to be? Wouldn't it be kind of amazing if it was a region that was known for, man, everything they do is amazing. You know, like, it's not just the Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. Like, of course, that's what's putting us on the map. And we have to respect that about um, what's giving us our name and the wines that are out there winning those awards and, and showing the world who we are. Like, I'm not taking any of that away. I'm saying that's incredible. But like, wouldn't it be incredible to not be known for just that, to be known for the community and, and the sense of like quality craftsmanship and, um, how just intentional we are here in Oregon about winemaking and that's the story versus a varietal. Mm -hmm. You know, like wouldn't it just be, yeah, amazing to be known for, for what we're doing, not for what the, you know, 
what varietal we pick to put in a bottle um, or what you know happens to work well. Um, there's lots of things that work well. There's lots of exciting and high quality wines to be made. Um, like Syrah and Aligote. There you go. Yeah, I mean, truly it's, you know, I know from like, you could argue both sides of it from a, like a, from marketing and branding perspective. But again, like I think what attracts me to Oregon is everything that we do here seems to be, I, I, someone told me once when we were moving here, she goes, oh my God, you're so lucky. Everything grows in Oregon. <laughs> like it was like a, a woman that does landscape and she's like, all the trees and plants that we get are from Oregon. And I'm thinking, yeah, like a lot of things do thrive here. And so it attracts people that are attracted to that, you know, creating high quality um, wine. And, and, and I just love people pushing the boundaries and doing new things. And I hope that our reputation slowly can be more about that intention rather than a varietal. So the questions that I have for you, uh, anything I didn't ask that I should have, anything that we didn't cover here today that you'd like to cover? I don't think so. No finishing question, like that you ask every single person the same question? Okay. No. Uh, we, we thought about that early on, but no. It's <laughs> like, what's your favorite thing to eat? Um, yeah, what's, what's, your favorite, what's your favorite wine and food pairing right now? <laughs> what, what donut goes best with your wine? I'm actually thinking of doing a donut tasting, a donut pairing um, with wine. Well, we were all very excited about the grilled cheese and bubbles, I will say. Oh my gosh, you have to come back for that because my husband has been perfecting the grilled cheese for months. And he's very proud and we, every Christmas we do a grilled cheese competition um, to see who can make the best grilled cheese. Um, so we have a lot of experience in this arena and you, we will not disappoint you in the grilled cheese uh, world. But for me, I'm just, I'm a really classic, like, I don't know, actually I should show you the artwork that I have that pairs um, like cult wines with junk food and yeah. For me, it's just really delicious, really delicious. Whatever's delicious, let's do it. <laughs> well, excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time, for your sharing your stories with us, sharing this amazing space with us. Congratulations on getting this off the ground. Um, and we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Well, thank you. I'm honored to be a part of it. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. With a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.